This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. In case you don't recognize the storied voice, that is Richard Burton on the set of Lucille Ball's 1970 sitcom, Here's Lucy. The couple kicked off Lucy's third season with an appearance that landed the episode at the top of CBS's ratings for the year, across their entire programming slate. May I present Lucille Carter as my wife, Elizabeth. Hello, how are you? Your eyes really are lavender. Wait till she hears the news and mine will be black and blue. What do you mean, love? Well, what would you think if I told you I'd turned plumber, mended her leaky pipes, met a man who was Cleopatra, and she's got your ring on her finger and she can't get it off? I'd say your cocktail hour had started a little early today. <laughs> You're not kidding. She does have it on. Yeah, and I can't get it off. Oh. oh, Richard. Elizabeth and Richard were playing themselves and playing to a national audience's perception of who they were as the Taylor Burton juggernaut. Starting with I Love Lucy... Lucio Ball's sitcom centered around some trouble that Lucy got into and the hilarity that ensued when she tried to get herself, and others, out of it. Usually, there was a ticking clock. In this episode, the ticking clock was a press junket that night for Elizabeth and Richard. And of course, the press would all want to see the ring. After trying and failing to get the ring off of Lucy's finger, they came up with a plan. Elizabeth would stand in front of a curtain and Lucy would stick her arm out from behind it as if her hand were Elizabeth's. With Elizabeth reacting to Lucy's rogue arm stuck through her dress, showing off the ring for the press, hilarity ensued. (laughs) Yes, Joyce, you were Joyce Haber of the Times. You know know Elizabeth. Of course, of course. Lovely to see you. I'm dying to see the ring. Oh, yes. When Elizabeth Taylor showed up on anyone's set, it was money. This was not new. We've heard how in her years as a child actor, Elizabeth could deliver an audience. Her fame was her path to power within the exploitive studio system and ultimately allowed her to break free from it. But Elizabeth's fame as an adult, free from that system, was a type of fame that was new, unique to her at the time. An entirely new industry of celebrity was forming around Elizabeth Taylor in the 1960s. Her life was generating it from the inside out. Since the first paparazzi pictures from the set of Cleopatra, the Taylor Burton show was in full swing. By the time Elizabeth graced the stage of Lucy's sitcom, the audience was so familiar with her private life, the elements of it were archetypes. The audience was in on all the inside jokes born from Elizabeth's lifestyle. What was that lifestyle as packaged and delivered by the press? Well, 
It was the authentic version of what today's social media influencers attempt to project. A luxe life of wild glamour, rarefied social air, and carefree jet setting. When Lucy's writers incorporated these touches from Elizabeth's life into the script, no nuance was lost on the audience because they had consumed every morsel of her life that the tabloid and mainstream media had served them. Even the press itself was a key part of the storyline. And Elizabeth knew it. The episode was a masterclass on how to take control of the narrative that the press constructs. Elizabeth and Richard went on an iconic and beloved comedian's show, made fun of themselves, and incorporated the press into the storyline for the cherry on top. Now, this one-off sitcom appearance was not some monumental moment in Elizabeth's career, but it is a great device to illustrate the broader origin story of contemporary celebrity, born from Elizabeth, especially as it relates to celebrity influencers. There is a word for it. By now, it's a commonplace term, a pop culture identifier of the machinery of celebrity. It's an industry in and of itself that has become so profitable, it has managers, agents, lawyers, corporate partners, and row after row of employees, design artists, business affairs executives, and publicists. But back then, the word for industry emerging around Elizabeth Taylor had yet to be articulated. Yet, we can see its DNA in what Lucy's writers crafted as plot for the biggest guest star of that sitcom ever landed. We can see it in The Diamond. In our last episode, we heard the story of how Richard Burton purchased the 69-carat Cartier diamond for Elizabeth. The instant he did, it was known as the Taylor Burton diamond. As far as names went, at that moment in time, the Taylor Burton show was bigger than Cartier. That diamond and all the others in Elizabeth's collection had become part of Elizabeth's identity. So much so, the pop culture moment for her on Lucy's show was orchestrated around the Taylor Burton ring. The stone was literally the plot. It would have been unthinkable to cast Elizabeth as herself in any setting and not use that diamond. What the episode was illustrating, what the phenomena of the broader Taylor Burton show was actually producing, was that new money-making machinery of celebrity. An industry that can be traced to the organic roller coaster happenings of Elizabeth's life. A concept which had yet to be named. Elizabeth Taylor was becoming a brand. I'm Katy Perry, and this is Elizabeth I. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Macy's, Adidas, Walmart, Nike, Wine.com, Samsung, Lenovo, Sephora, and more. 
and even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. This is Chapter 4, The Show. It didn't matter what Elizabeth did in her life. The press would cover it because they knew it would sell. Big stuff, small stuff, any sized morsel of Elizabeth that was published or broadcast, readers and viewers would swallow it whole. But as consumed as Elizabeth's life was by a global audience, and as authentic and real as she was in living it, The most precious and informative part of Elizabeth wasn't generally understood as part of her emerging brand, because it involved her private life, a life outside the reach of the press and paparazzi, the life inside her home. Unpacking this life is critical to understanding where Elizabeth would take her brand, to understanding the strength and the longevity of her influence. Elizabeth was a loving mother. When she married Burton, she had her little girl Liza and her two older boys, Chris and Michael. Richard was also a parent, and the couple adopted a little girl, Maria. In these years, Elizabeth's big growing family was protected, as best as they could be, from the paparazzi swarm. As wild as Elizabeth's life with Richard may have been, she gave her children a home. Her daughter-in-law, Eileen Getty, daughter of John Paul Getty II, gives us an account of what life with Elizabeth as mom was like. My name is Eileen Getty, and I met mom when I was probably, I was probably just about 19. Um, She made such a huge impression on my life and came at a time in my own development. I mean, I was very impressionable probably quite broken. And I felt like I kind of landed in in a nest. Chris and Michael um, are her sons. And I married Chris. So she was my mother-in-law. I did meet her two days after Michael Wilding died. And that's how that meeting happened because we all, we were all in England at Michael's house. And that was the first opportunity um, that had come, that had presented itself. Um, so it was a, a, a very sad time, but it, it was almost um, narcotic-like for me. And I just felt, I felt the love of a, of, a, of a family and not to put pressure on that family, but I think that there was so much about the way I saw them care for one another and participate with each other's lives that I felt maybe missing in my own. So I, I, I kind of just, I fell into it and I allowed myself to get lost in that. I called her mom right from the, right from the get-go. I don't really know that there was a, a moment where I had to think about what I was going to call her. It just, it, it just felt like the natural thing to call her. And not to take away from my own mother, because that's really important for me to say. 
a lot that I drew from mom that I needed that I was able to find in her that perhaps I couldn't find in other women or my mother. And that doesn't make other women or my mother less rich and valuable to my life's history. But I did feel like this sense, and I think it's because mom had such a way of just scooping you up. And it's just, there was just such a delicious scoop. I was there for it. It felt good. There was just so much fun. That that warmth was fun too. Like there was so much humor. There was so much, there was so much love. I felt like there was so much physicality too. That was something that I think I was really drawn towards. Just her belly laugh. And there was a loudness. And everyone just said whatever they wanted to say. I met Chris and Michael and Liza and Maria, and I felt safe. There were many things that I was seeking that seemed, I think I was looking for love. I was looking to be accepted. I was looking for warmth um, and to be a part of a family. I was so drawn to, to mom and her family, uh, to her family life. And it felt wild, but in a, a safe wild, whereas maybe mine felt wild. My, my own had been wild, but not safe. On the business front, by the time of the Taylor Burton show, Elizabeth was well-versed in what L.B. Mayer had both created and mastered, using the press's need to publicize her life to her advantage. The press were hounding her anyway, no matter what choices she made in her personal life or her career. Elizabeth might not have allowed tabloid rags into her home, but that didn't mean she wasn't wise enough to capitalize on the free PR. So Elizabeth and Richard clearly knew what was going to, what stories the audience wanted to see from them because they were their own big show and it was reflected in their films. It's not that any of those roles, like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, a lot of people felt like that was just them being them. But of course not, because she was frumpy, you know, and he was this loser professor. So it wasn't them. And that wasn't who they really truly were. But they played into a lot of the myth, you know, a lot of the legend, a lot of the gossip, a lot of the, you know, a lot of how the world viewed aspects of them. Right after we had done Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and we had all the children, all the dogs, all our possessions, we had everything. We had 138 suitcases. And in one box, very, very big box, it was almost a suitcase. Uh, all my jewelry, and Ivor, Richard's brother, who had muscles that rivaled Sly's, uh, was in charge of that. So we got to my house in Stadt, and we always had a stopping off place. The Beau Rivage in Lausanne had our Bloody Mary and some peanuts. I looked at Ivor, and I looked at Richard, and I said, Ivor, where's the jewelry bag? In his deep, Welsh voice. 
It's right down here. Nothing. So Richard and Ivor looked at each other and stood up as one man and went herring out of that bar like you've never seen two people. This, mind you, holds my entire collection of jewelry, several mil. They get to the train station and there, in the solitary ray of sunshine, was the bag which evidently had been hidden. But there it was, just sitting by itself, having its own chuckle. Taming of the Shrew. So Richard's running around. She's gorgeous, but she's wild and she can't be tamed. Of course, she starts to have compassion. And we start to see the real people and their vulnerability. And once that happens, then they truly can be together. They use their dynamic even when it was Shakespeare. The concept of being a brand hadn't yet been articulated in celebrity culture. Of course, actors had identifying traits. Paul Newman was cool. Marilyn was walking sex. And even Elizabeth Taylor had an identifier as the most beautiful woman alive. Advertisers had experimented with matching celebrity traits with their products and brands as early as Babe Ruth, the great Bambino, and his underwear and chocolate bars. But celebrities as brands? This was not in the zeitgeist before Elizabeth. Looking back on that Lucy episode, orchestrating it around the Taylor Burton diamond was a publicity coup. The couple, the diamond, the excitement of seeing what everyone had been reading about on television in your living room, alongside the queen of comedy, ensured and delivered an audience bonanza. Everyone showed up to watch the Taylor Burton show, and not just because they were the most famous couple in the world, but because they were living a lifestyle that fascinated the masses, at least for part of the culture. The folk rock music festival, which brought 350,000 people to a rural area two hours from New York City, finally ended at dawn's early lights. But while the music is over, the aftertaste lingers on. For it seems now more certain than ever that the bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a spiraling pace of change allows us to contemplate within our own lifetime advances that once would have taken centuries in throwing wide the horizons of space. Glamour isn't always in season. America's transition from the 1960s to the 70s included movements and protests against a war in Vietnam and a presidency swamped with corruption and for a list of equal rights that had long been denied. Elizabeth wasn't attempting to run counter to the counterculture, but her life with Richard wasn't purposefully running with it. Elizabeth and Richard were artists who, like rock stars of decades to come, were making great money and living loudly. In terms of their influence on the contemporary cultural scene, it was an aspirational lifestyle for one generation and an unrelatable one for the next. At this point, 
she and Richard were living life large and they were drinking and they were partying and they were making money, you know, hand over fist and they were buying jewels and they had houses and they had yacht and they had all this stuff going on. And at that point, they started to fall behind the times, the theme of what was going on. Thus is the natural arc of influencer longevity. If you're around long enough, there may be a moment when you fall out of step with the times. If Elizabeth had been a young celebrity today, the world of talent managers and publicists and even social media pressures would likely have demanded a bend to the trend to maximize from it. And likely, she would have ignored them. Which brings us to the big lesson in what Elizabeth did, naturally, that made her the first influencer. Stay true to who you are. In those counterculture years, Elizabeth didn't shy away from advocacy because Richard and members of his family had the recessive gene for hemophilia. Elizabeth and Richard started a foundation to help fund research for a cure. When Robert Kennedy was shot and killed, she took out a full-page ad in the New York Times against gun violence. She saw a bigger picture that would sadly only accelerate in our lifetime. If Elizabeth was going to lend her name and voice to a cause, it would be one close to the heart. From the very beginning, everything that went into the Elizabeth Taylor brand came organically from her. That is the key to her brand's longevity. By the time we reach the end of this series and look back at this moment in this episode, we'll see this payoff for Elizabeth. We'll see that what she did spend her time on and explore during this era is what helped cement her legacy so that the work for which she was most passionate could persist long after her time on this earth. So what did she explore in the Taylor Burton era of the 60s and 70s instead of bending to the counterculture trend? Elizabeth dove headfirst into life. Living la dolce vita for Elizabeth meant indulging, exploring, and educating herself about her great passions. If it moved her, she was all in. And nothing moved Elizabeth quite like jewelry. She was a very, very well-trained, so to say, about jewelry. I mean, she always uh, used to talk about her passion, her, her love for gemstones and, and jewelry. And she was a, a passionate uh, collector, for sure. She had um, hundreds of jewels from uh, every brand, the, the top ones uh, and the completely unknown ones, because she was really a jewelry lover, but she knew about jewelry. The only word Elizabeth knows in Italian is Bulgari. Don't you love it? The only word in Italian she knows is Bulgari. And one day, Richard said, I want to buy you a present. I want to buy you a present. I, want to I just feel like buying you a present today. And I said, wow. <laughs> that's something for you to say. You, that's amazing. Oh. Uh, where, 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 where should we go? Uh, and he said, for Bulgari, of course. The connection between a brand and a celebrity works when it's genuine. A lot of effort and resources are put into cultivating just the right match. But with Elizabeth, she just followed her heart, her tastes, her passions. If she showed up at your brand's doorstep, well, that was the win. 
Elizabeth simply wouldn't be there if she didn't feel that connection to begin with. It originated from within her own identity. And with Bulgari, that connection was a two-way street. Brand curator Lucia Boschini gives us a peek into how and why the House of Bulgari considers Elizabeth Taylor the ultimate Bulgari woman. My name is Lucia Boscaini, and I'm the brand curator for Bulgari, based in Rome, the famous maison, um, jewelry maison uh, since uh, 1884. And uh, in my role, I'm in charge also of the heritage collection and the archive related to the Bulgari history. And that's why I'm so fond of of whatever is related to Bulgari and Elizabeth Taylor. She was uh, such an amazing uh, ambassador uh, and uh, a loyal client for decades. And she used to own uh, among the most beautiful masterpieces in, uh, in our production from the 60s until the early year 2000. And so uh, we have been learning so much uh, about her passion, about jewelry, about the design, and even more about gemstone, because she was really very knowledgeable about uh, major gemstone. We know she used to love emeralds, and we are proud to own uh, one of probably of the most beautiful emerald necklace that she she used to have. It's a Bulgari beautiful jewel. Well, Bulgari as a brand is a visionary, is eclectic. Uh, we are very much interpreting the, the past and respecting the tradition, but uh, improving and creating something very contemporary. And somehow in a daring way, in uh, going beyond the border, borders and trying to to break the rules, setting new rules, actually. This is very much um, one of the most relevant aspects of our brand uh, identity. And definitely in this, Elizabeth Taylor was uh, very much in line with this. She was a passionate, daring, uh, able to embrace uh, ideas, uh, uh, somehow controversial. So the Bulgari woman is uh, uh, someone daring, uh, um, non-conventional, larger than life uh, as an attitude. And all this is definitely uh, something that it's also suitable for describing uh, Elizabeth Taylor. Elizabeth's connection with Bulgari was made even more special because of the personal relationships she had. When Elizabeth and Richard were in Rome, they had a small social circle of artists and artisans, including the Bulgari brothers, who enriched their lives. But mostly, the pair collected incredible pieces from Maison Bulgari because they had the stones and settings that spoke to Elizabeth's soul. So there was this um, lateral uh, entrance, uh, which was uh, closed for everyone, uh, but uh, for Elizabeth and, and Richard. They used to enter this uh, door with, still in the car and then just jump from the car into the store in one second. So it was extremely private. And uh, during the Dolce Vita time, well, paparazzi were everywhere, especially in Via Condotti. 
So it was extremely convenient to, to them to, to come privately and to stay quiet there just for a, a fruit of champagne or for a chat or, for, I mean, to, to spend one hour in relax with friends because, of course, the, the Bulgari brothers were more or less their, I mean, the same age. They were good friends, actually, or a personal standpoint. So we go to the back money room. And Richard said to Johnny, I want to buy Elizabeth present, but it cannot exceed $100,000. And draw over a pin. Johnny, $100,000 for that? You got a joking. Richard said, Johnny, what kind of game are you playing with us? And Richard said, oh, come on, Johnny, be a sport. Uh, just try. <laughs> Extend yourself. <laughs> try a little. Uh, and Johnny brought out a ruby and diamond necklace. I'd never seen jewelry like that. It was huge. Yeah. Each stone was enormous. And Richard asked how much it was, and it was over a million dollars. He said, well, I have a less expensive one here. And he brought it out, and it was like, <gasps> oh, my God. And so people still today come asking, uh, can we see which was this entrance uh, where they used to be? And, and actually, uh, it's there. And uh, it's uh, something I, I think it's nice to, to, to be remembered. Because it's a, it's another aspect of the, I mean the normal lively lovely lady that she used to be. I mean a, a normal person that wanted to have some fun, some relax, and enjoying friendship. Yes, Elizabeth was a normal person in the ways that mattered. She shared herself with those she loved. She was generous. She was fun. She cared. She was a mother, a wife, a friend. She was real. But Elizabeth and Richard were also two artists, flying like Icarus, as close to the white-hot heat of the sun as possible, without falling from the burns. But the torched fall is inevitable in that flight. From the hard-partying lifestyle, to the jet-set expenses, to the tumultuous fights between two Celtic spirits, the Taylor Burton era was destined to end but not before Elizabeth pushed her own artistry into its height. Today, an influencer can become a celebrity simply by building an audience. Fake or real, it doesn't matter. And a celebrity can become an influencer by simply flaunting a lifestyle that they may or may not genuinely live. Elizabeth, she was gifted. Talent burned at her core. And there was no flying towards the sun without it.
What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. What a dump. Hey, what's that from? What a dump. How would I know? Oh, come on. What's it from? You know. Martha. There, there was no place in me that I could dig to find Martha. Um, I had to observe a lot of people. Uh, friends, uh, older friends and luscious. Virginia Woolf. Now that was a monumental moment in Elizabeth's career. It was a performance that rocked the industry and the audiences alike. And it didn't just arrive out of the blue. I'm a completely instinctive actress. I've never had any lessons. I try and become the character. Now, I don't know what school of acting that is. I don't think it's any school. When I did uh, Taming of the Shrew, because I'd never done Shakespeare before, and here are the most accomplished, polished British stage actors. And here's Muggins, from Hollywood, you know, who had done Cleopatra, which was like a mockery to those people. But I began to learn from them their technique and way of looking at acting, which was totally and solely different from method acting. I think I gave everything I had to give in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I was 32, and uh, Mike Nichols asked me to take voice lessons, to lower my voice. Uh, I could put on 20 pounds. I wore prosthetics and padding and stuff under here. I was 32 and playing um, this ravenous uh, 55, 60-year-old woman, a drunk, uh, screaming lunatic who was deeply in love with her husband but didn't know how to express it. I think that was my favorite role because I really had to get my finger up and act. Regardless of how her lifestyle may have ebbed and flowed with the times, Elizabeth's art kept her relevant across generations. And being the businesswoman that she was, 
Elizabeth was often able to protect her art by protecting her ownership of it. For the films she starred in out of her production company, the art was hers to produce and share. By having proprietary control, Elizabeth could ensure that the work was true to the promise of the material. Where she was not in control of the film, but wanted the role anyway, Elizabeth understood the value she brought as an artist, and she used that value to negotiate unique deals and have as much say possible in the final product. Let this be another lesson to add to the list for every young or aspiring influencer. Keep true to your brand. Earn your influence through hard work and never take your eye off the bottom line. When she did Virginia Woolf, uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, after VIPs and Sandpiper, her payday on that ended up being even greater. That was over, over $2 million because part of the negotiation with that was a higher percentage of the retail growth. And so, and then the film ended up being very successful. That's how she was able to get the much higher payday was for that. And even maybe taking a cut on the salary for a larger piece of the back. And if you believe in yourself and you believe in the project, which in the case of Virginia Woolf, they clearly believed in the project. And it was something that Elizabeth had never done a role like that before. Um, there was a certain blurring of, of public and private and personal life with, with her and Richard's relationship playing out. And I think it was also a testament to her work ethic, too, is that she, from all the letters and testimony of people that worked with Elizabeth, and for all the, maybe you could say, popular rumors of her being difficult to work with, everybody seemed to regard her as a consummate professional. And that she always, even if she wasn't always on time, maybe she always knew her lines, and she always did her research. She always wanted to read as much as she could about the characters, about the roles, and she always had input on her character, on perhaps on the script, on the costumes, and every facet that she, she was really interested in making the productions the best that they could be and doing her part towards that. Hard work on her craft and dedication to her business could not keep Elizabeth from the fall. The Taylor Burton era would end in divorce, an attempt at remarriage, a second divorce, addiction, abuse, the affliction of a desire impossible to sustain and survive. There is no moment, there is no moment anymore when we could come together. Maybe you're right, you can't come together with nothing and you're nothing. Snap! I looked at you tonight and you weren't there! Snap! And, and I'm gonna howl it out! And I'm not gonna give a damn what I do, and I'm gonna make the biggest goddamn explosion you've ever heard! You try and I'll beat you at your own game. Is that a threat, George, huh? That's a threat, Martha. Of all the frictions and obstacles that Elizabeth and Richard faced, it was the alcohol that ended the union. There were lingering projects that the two had to complete together. A challenging task, as Richard moved on more quickly than Elizabeth. The two were cast in private lives, and Richard already had a new lady. That wasn't easy. The public wanted to see it because they wanted to see Liz and Dick, so they didn't care. Um, we were both miscast. 
but it didn't seem to matter to the public. For once, the critics lost, and I enjoyed that. The critics had no bearing on whether people came or not. They came. Elizabeth and Richard's box office was half of the 60s. What the Taylor Burton show allowed Elizabeth and Richard to do is to dominate the box office during certain years of the 60s where they basically were 50% of all the box office grosses of all films worldwide with their own product, with their own films because of the Taylor Burton show. And they knew it. The show continued to work for delivering an audience, but the pain Elizabeth faced from her failed marriage was not the only thing lingering from it. Addiction would come for her as well. Elizabeth's fall from the sun brought the ground up underneath her in a new realm of life and death. The mortal stakes that Elizabeth was facing were not a miscarriage of a child or a plane crash of a husband or pneumonia that robbed the air from her lungs. This was different. This was self-destruction as a disease. And it was a disease that, at the time, held a stigma around it. It wasn't until I went to the center to get off the prescription drugs that I realized I was also an alcoholic. I needed sleeping pills to go to sleep every night of my life for about the last 25 years. Uh, I have had a lot of operations. I've had a lot of genuine pain in my life. And instead of facing the pain and learning to live with it, I've always resorted to pain pills, Percodan, uh, Emperor and Codeine, Tylenol and Codeine. And I've, I learned to rely on that. Before Elizabeth would realize that she needed help, she would try for love again. And she would have to let go of the big symbol of the Taylor Burton show. The Taylor Burton diamond was so much a symbol of the lives that Richard and Elizabeth had together. And in a Barbara Walters interview, she says that, you know, her life with Richard, as amazing as it was, there was a point where it got to be too much. It was all kind of too much. There's too much passion, too much love. They could only keep up with that for so long. And I believe that that Taylor Burton 69-carat pear-shaped diamond that was a ring, and Elizabeth wore it on Here's Lucy, and realized, like, even for her, it was too big as a ring. She told me that. And so it was, it was, it was made convertible so that you could wear it, in a, in, and she designed a necklace uh, with Cartier for it. But once her relationship with Richard was over, she married John Warner. Actually, John Warner was a blind date. The um, ambassador, the English ambassador in Washington, Mm -hmm. um, invited me to a party that the Queen was giving for the president, a reciprocal party. And she invited me because I'm British and asked me who I wanted as an escort. And I said, I don't know anyone here, but find somebody for God's sake. She went to Washington to be a senator's wife, and I'm not sure if it was John Warner's suggestion or her own to just say, look, I think I need to let this go now. And Elizabeth made the decision when she got to Washington, a conservative town, 
And I think at that point, she was more than ready to lose that big identity and live a simple life with, frankly, a farmer <laughs> who, and live on a beautiful farm in Virginia. But John Warner wanted to run for the Senate. So she supported him, as any good partner would. And she sold that diamond to help pay for his campaign to get him elected to the Senate. Uh, she sold her Rolls Royce because he did not think that that's what a senator's wife wasn't a good look. And she went out on the road herself to campaign. I think it became a little tricky when her politics didn't match with John's politics. She wasn't just going to sit back and not express her opinion, as maybe was expected by wives of senators. Uh, but the Taylor Burton diamond was just so big. And I think for Elizabeth, it was such a symbol of her life with Richard that it was one piece that didn't have a future with her without Richard. Oh, to grow with somebody on the farm and sit in front of the fireplace and read books. And I had a gentle horse called Sam that I could ride even with my back. He was so gentle. Uh, that's all I'm getting into. When politics came along, he uh, divorced his whole family. <laughs> Not only me, but his children. It was like the Senate became his wife. And I couldn't cope with that. Through it all, Elizabeth was struggling. And a year after the collapse of her chapter as a senator's wife, it was time for those who loved her. The family she scooped up with her generous arms and placed in a wild, safe nest to find their voices for her. Her family staged an intervention. It's called Tough Love, and it is. It was amazing. Uh, Roddy McDowell was there, and he said that I became absolutely silent, and my mouth sort of opened as if I were about to gasp for air that I didn't say anything for about two hours, except please leave me alone for a couple of hours. It has to be my decision. I had caused my children such pain. I'd inflicted that, and it killed me. Elizabeth's bottom was not something that she'd inflicted on herself. It was seeing the pain that she'd caused others especially those she loved most. She checked into the Betty Ford Clinic after the intervention. Elizabeth recounted in several interviews the moment she arrived at Betty Ford. To humanize her experience for anyone listening who might also be suffering and help foster public confidence for the program. One of sheer terror, and uh, I guess it was the first time really in my life I'd been totally left on my, loan, my own. And they didn't quite know how to deal with me. I was the first celebrity to ever have gone. And they were wondering whether I should have private classes or be with the group and have group therapy. And they decided, yeah, she's like everybody else. 
And of course, that was the best way to treat me because we were all there for one reason, and that was to get over our addictions and to cure ourselves and be better. From the intervention, whatever mysterious well from which Elizabeth had always derived her strength was accessed. Elizabeth Taylor drove herself to the Betty Ford Clinic on December 5th, 1983, and checked in to save her own life. And by the time she checked out, she knew she could use her influence to save the lives of countless others. Elizabeth Taylor was the first celebrity on the record to have checked into rehab. It seems an incredible claim nowadays, but it's true. Sharing her story, going public with her addiction and treatment, was the first of Elizabeth's influential acts that she did for the sole reason of saving the lives of fellow sufferers of generations of strangers to come. It was just the beginning of a chapter defined by acts of selfless love. I'm proud that I did it, that I went through it. I was the first celebrity that had done it. And I hope that other women would think, well, if she can do it, I can do it. And you came back with a vengeance. Yeah. On the next episode of Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth's home was where everything happened. There was so much activity. There was such an intake of things, you know, stuff constantly arriving at the house. I'd spend the summers and stay at Grandma's house and, and do like photo shoots with her clothes. She was very generous. She gave lots of things. If you liked something, she'd very often give it to you. She was the only one for the entire time that I worked for her. I would lose my breath and have to compose myself before I actually saw her. And every time I saw her, I had butterflies in my stomach. She laid into me. I was a nervous wreck for the next 18 years when she asked me for something. It was like training a dog, but it was Elizabeth's way of doing things. It wasn't a standard way. Elizabeth I is produced by Imperative Entertainment in association with House of Taylor and Kitty Purry Productions. Executive producers are Katy Perry, Jason Hoke, and Stephanie Koff. Elizabeth I is narrated by Katy Perry, produced by Jason Hoke, and written by Stephanie Koff. Sound engineering and audio editing by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. House of Taylor trustees are Quinn Tivy, Tim Mendelson, and Barbara Berkowitz. And its brand strategy consultant is Aaron Dawkins. Marshall Eskowitz and Carrie Schwartz of Sunset Boulevard serve as producing partners and represent House of Taylor for Elizabeth Taylor licensing and content opportunities. Joshua Klebe wrote and composed the original score. Additional music provided by Reese Tivy. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. If you'd like to support the Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation, visit elizabethtaylor-aidsfoundation.org. And if you'd like to go deeper into the world of Elizabeth Taylor, keep an eye out for the first authorized biography about her life. Elizabeth Taylor, The Grit and Glamour of an Icon by number one New York Times bestselling author Kate Anderson Brower will be out on December 6. For more behind the scenes content, follow at Elizabeth Taylor, at Katy Perry, and at Imperative Podcasts on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Love the series? Don't forget to tell your friends and leave a review. 
Thanks for listening.